Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. Good morning. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. We're live streaming on Jolt Radio from Miami, Florida. Today we celebrate Miami Art Week and Art Basel Miami Beach 2017 for many reasons. First of all, we began the week with an award ceremony. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, as part of its Night Arts Challenge, gave a huge boost to our radio show with a $50,000 matching grant. If this is your first time to tune in, here's our story. I'm an independent curator based in Miami Beach. In 2011, I launched the Fresh Art International podcast from a park bench in Brooklyn. Last year, we expanded the platform to bring you a weekly art talk show on Jolt Radio. Why listen? We infuse our conversations about today's art, design, and film with unique sonic experiences. We transport you to sites of creativity at the center and fringe of cultural communities across six continents. You can find more than 100 of our listening experiences anywhere you go for podcasts. The Night Arts Challenge Grant will enable us to broaden the global exposure of culture makers transforming Miami and South Florida. Our vision is to keep sparking conversations about creativity, one voice at a time, reach new listeners, spotlight emerging arts initiatives, host remote live streaming radio events, and syndicate Fresh Art International. Today's show features a few of our latest field recordings, Tanya Hollander, Nancy Davidson, Tanya Elkuri, Sarah Driver, and Amy Sherald. We'll be talking about the roles that social media art, inflatable sculpture, interactive performance, documentary film, and figurative painting played during Miami Art Week and Art Basel 2017. First, you'll meet Tanya Hollander, an artist who lives and works in Auburn, Maine. No need for a ticket to an art fair or a museum to experience her social media project. Are you really my friend? During Art Week, you could participate by visiting a small pavilion inside the Botanical Garden on Miami Beach. This was just a fragment of the vast archive that's currently on view in its entirety at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art, also known as Mass MoCA. We were just talking about why this project is so accessible. Well, I think it's a project because it's based in friendship. Everybody can relate. Even if you're not on Facebook, you have thoughts about what friends mean to you, and it crosses class lines, age lines, some of the favorite um, post-it notes I've gotten are from some kids in a charter school in the South Bronx. And you compare those to Ph.D. candidates at MIT, and there are a lot of similarities. So we can talk about the fact that the source of the project that she brings to Miami on a mini-scale is a huge installation that she has at Mass MoCA right now. Are You Really My Friend? That's the title and the subject of the work. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about the genesis. Okay. When you started, it looked like you had less than a thousand friends on Facebook. Correct. And I noticed 
when I looked today, just I was like, how did her friendship grow in this process <laughs> up to over 3,000? Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize it was that many, but it well, looked like you had 600 something when you started. 626 when I started. I made a spreadsheet when I first started, and I was handwriting a letter to a friend who was deployed in Afghanistan in pencil. And at the same time, I was instant messaging a friend in Jakarta who was working on a film. And I started thinking about those two friendships and the different ways of communicating and how we are re-examining friendship and how we communicate with each other in the 21st century. And is that something that's photographable? And if it is, how do I set about doing it? So, I mean, I've always been interested in community and how we create community. I photographed landscapes before this on my daily drive to the beach. I live in Maine, and so and that was a really important ritual for me to go have coffee on the beach. And before that, I was photographing out um, my window and then friends' windows. So home, community, travel, these things were all really important to me, and I feel like it's almost this project is almost a retrospective of all my other bodies of work kind of combined into one. I love that when that happens, mm. when it, there's a synchronicity and this fusion of everything, your lived experience and your creative practice. Right, right. And so let's break it down the process, what, what you did okay. when you started thinking about how you're communicating in the 21st century, and you made a decision to take a journey. So I decided what friendship meant to me was somebody that you had over for dinner and you drank too much red wine and you argued about art or politics, but had really good conversations and were still friends in the morning. There was nothing that you could say that you wouldn't wake up and be like, no. So that meant that I wanted to go visit everybody and see if they would let me into their homes. And perhaps we would share a meal or a drink or something like that. And then I would do a formal portrait of them. And so there is this formal portrait. I did 430 portraits and I think 424 homes because there are a couple of overlaps. And what it turned into was also this sort of... It, it became about the travel and about what people thought about friendship as much as the final portrait. So I started saving, pretty early on, I started saving my boarding passes and I would look at them and there was like the beautiful handwriting of a TSA agent on them. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is actually kind of interesting in and of itself. Or crazy, you know, potato chip bags from Brussels or Greece or something where translations are always wrong. So I had all of this stuff, what I call travel ephemera which were little objects that form a friendship. And then I started collecting these post-it notes, asking people what they thought a real friend was, and I started saving them and scanning them and cataloging them. All of this stuff is cataloged. And then the final element of the body of work is uh, snapshots and formal landscapes that I took along my travels. So wherever I had morning coffee, I photographed. I photographed um, kids playing. They always wanted to do selfies. Just everything I saw and did. So it's, it's a pretty intense documentary as well. What countries, across the U.S., of course, but what other countries did, did you journey to to complete this archive? In Europe, Scotland, France, U.K., to London, um, Germany, Greece, Italy, Spain, and then Kuala Lumpur, and... Auckland, New Zealand, where Auckland was the farthest. So where did the post-its come in? That's how many of the ideas are being exhibited. The project had only existed online on Facebook, really, before I had a show. 
So I wanted a way for people to be able to interact with the concept and with the images in a museum setting that was different than an online setting, but so that they referenced each other. So I thought, what if somebody could literally post to my wall at the museum? And then the obvious answer was using post-it notes. <laughs> I'm using social media, and I'm also building a giant database that's in process. But um, So the post-its are keyworded, so you can see through a word cloud the ones that come up the most, where I've gathered them from, they're geolocated. And then all of the other objects, the ephemera and the snapshots and the portraits are also uh, in the database. And this is a journey that you took over how much time? The show installed at Mass Mocha almost exactly six years from when I started photographing. I have screenshots and different versions of iPhones and like different because, you know, you weren't always able to mobile upload and you weren't always able to link Instagram and the like button and then the like button turns to emojis and like all these different versions of Facebook throughout this. So you've tracked the evolution of social media over six years now. Yeah. Almost seven years, yeah. How have you seen the critical community, the curatorial community, writing about this topic? So there actually aren't that many photo historian social media people. Kate Palmer-Albers out of University of Arizona in Tucson is the only one that I know of that is photography, art history, and social media. There are starting to be social media historians and social media philosophers And the Pew Center has been doing incredible research, Pew Center for Internet Studies. What do you hope people experience with this? We're telling them that they can come and put their own post-its up. They can also participate virtually. Yeah, they can post them on Instagram and tag, are you really my friend? What question do you want these post-its to answer exactly? I want them to answer the question that I have printed on the wall, what is a real friend? And very impressed by the personal stories people are telling on these post-its and it's going to become a a really beautiful archive of humanity I feel like in the 21st century. By example, Tanya Hollander shows the potential for meaningful relationships within our global online community. New York-based artist Nancy Davidson is not so optimistic. For the multimedia installation Per Sway, that she presents at Locust Projects in Miami. Nancy created inflatable symbols of power and control that mirror the bizarre and horrifying political climate in the world today. Locust Project is an artist space, artist invented, and basically they give artists the opportunity to take over the whole space, but also they require a few things. One of them is that you try new things in your practice, and you throw everything you've got at the space and see what happens. You know, so they want experimentation, they want new ideas, they want fresh direction. So all of the work in this show is from this year. Let's describe the figures, the shapes that are in this space. Sure. We're standing yes. beneath this, I this envy. fabulous yes. eye. It's yes. called what? I-N-V-E-Y-E-E-N-V-Y, E-Y-E-E-N-V-Y. one word. Okay, it's this beautiful orange inflatable object. With legs. With legs. Yes, with more than two legs because, as Carolee Schneeman says, any girl knows that you need more than two legs to make it anywhere in this world. So I think women artists know this. Right? It, you not only have to have legs, but you have to keep them running. And my show 
and almost every piece has legs. Most of the pieces in here are elevated to some extent. And the reason that I'm doing that is because I'm making a comment about privilege. We contemplate the enormous pink sculpture looming over the entrance to the main gallery space. It's 14 feet tall. It's actually a kind of multiple molecular structure. So you could think of like Louise Bourgeois' beast with multiple breasts on all, like a radial structure with multiple breasts, or you could think about it as an atom, a cell growing and dividing. And the thing I like about this piece is that it looks as if it's almost ready to collapse. You know, or explode. Or explode. Like, it looks like this space can hardly contain it. It's yeah, pushing yeah, it's itself pushing. against the ceiling. It's pushing against the floor. Right. You were talking about the light that you've mm-hmm. created, the twilight. Right. right. As you look toward the entrance, right. you see this glowing orange wall and beyond it, a twilight space. Right. We were talking about mm-hmm. the in-between space as right. being that space of uncertainty yes that yes. we're all sensing in the universe yes right now interesting isn't it in the universe right so it's both macro and micro in a sense you know everything seems to be changing from the climate to the politics there's a diaspora in this world that's going on with people being moved from one large area to another people are losing their homes they're being displaced and that is a time of change in many ways, both culturally, physically. I don't have the answer to this question. Where are we going? What are we doing? What's happening in our world? What does it mean? We've got this sound of a fan, and it's intentional. Why do you choose to have that rather invasive sound in the space? Again, you're in between, right? This mechanized sound, the sound of blowing, it's like, why can't that go away? Why can't I be in this space in a more friendly sound? It fills the room just like the light does. And I suppose that invasive, persistent sound is like today's news. I would say. <laughs> you can't get away from no, it. You no. need to acknowledge it, yeah. but you don't need to let it dominate your entire experience of the world. This is Fresh Arts International. We're live streaming on Jolt Radio with our show about Miami Art Week 2017. In the conversation you just heard, artist Nancy Davidson talks about the unsettling political environment that continues to displace individuals and communities around the world. Miami-Dade College Live Arts Program brings our attention to this dilemma by inviting artist Tanya El Khoury to share a dozen haunting stories from the Middle East. Based in London and Beirut, Tanya choreographed two intimate, interactive performances for venues on Miami Beach, one-on-one encounters inside a small room at the New World Center, and a theatrical experience for groups of ten at the Fillmore Theater. We only want what everyone wants. It's an enormous pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Thank you for coming to see the shows. You've just brought such an amazing conversation to a week that is so 
much about being inundated with the art market and the economy of creative practice. And I love that you've brought this other conversation to Miami. I just experienced, as far as my fingertips take me, let's talk about that project. Tell me what is the idea behind it. So this is a collaboration I made with a friend of mine who's a Palestinian-Syrian artist based in London. The piece is a one-on-one piece between a conversation between himself and an audience member at a time through a hole in a gallery wall. The idea is that the audience is invited to place their arm in that hole when a refugee touches their, uh, their arm and paints on it. To come to USA, he got refused uh, entry visa because he was born in Damascus. So we had to change it. We had to include this part with it. We had to change the introduction. We had to invite another artist to perform his role, but also include the fact that, ironically, this is a piece about borders. This is a piece about people being able to move freely and uh, get refuge when they're in danger. But at the same time, the performer cannot really perform it to American audience because of the discriminatory border policies here. How would you describe the focus of your practice? I don't think I have a specific focus. I've worked with many different areas. I've worked on gender politics. I've worked on borders. I've worked on oral history, whether this is oral history coming from asylum seekers or oral history trying to to build oral history on those uh, people who were killed. But also I've worked a lot on the right to the city, the right to access public spaces, My work, if I want to describe it, my work is always interactive and it's always based on research. So the audience is often part of the piece. The audience is a collaborator rather than just a spectator. I think that's really important. It's obviously that's what just happened. I had a narrative of this individual artist who was unable to come and tell his own story. And at the time I was listening, it was drawn on my arm. Hello. My name is Baz. I'm sitting on the other side of the wall. Please, place your left arm in the hole, in the wall in front of you. The other experience that you've offered here in Miami has to do with Syrians in a gravesite. So the piece is called Gardens Peak, and this is based on 10 oral histories who were collected in the early days of the Syrian uprising. And it was specifically about uh, people who were buried in gardens rather than former cemeteries for various reasons. And the piece invited the audience to lie in over uh, four tons of dirt, soil, and listen to various stories. Each audience listens to one different stories of these uh, real people who were killed by the Syrian regime. What is your aim for this work? 
the aim is mainly to share those stories, but mainly when you work with oral history, you aim to participate in the writing of certain history, but this writing is a history from below rather than the, the narrative that states give us or the narrative of the media, of the geopolitics. So it is a contribution to a writing of history from ordinary people, which I hope to do with the piece. But what the audience would come out of it depends on them. You know, I try not to be very predetermine what people would feel because each person feels very differently with interactive work in general. I think it's important for me. It was an intimate experience of a refugee story mm. that I wouldn't have experienced any other way mm. if you hadn't brought it to me mm. because that's not an area of which I have much knowledge mm. and I welcome the opportunity to learn more about it through the individual voice. It's very meaningful. Thank you. Thank you. Tanya Okuri's interactive art takes us far outside the mainstream American cultural perspective. New York-based filmmaker Sarah Driver does the same, taking us back in time to a seminal moment in New York City history with her new documentary, Boom for Real, the late teenage years of Jean-Michel Basquiat. Sarah was part of the independent film scene in Lower Manhattan in the late 1970s through the 1990s. Besides making her own feature films, she's recognized for producing early film projects by her partner Jim Jarmusch. Magnolia Pictures laid claim to Boom for Real after screenings at the 2017 Toronto and New York festivals. In spring 2018, the film will open in theaters. What I loved seeing in the film was that you seemed to definitely know this guy before he became an art star. You know, we all knew each other. He was like a kid that we all knew, you know, that we would see around and often wanted to sleep on people's floors or sofas. We all knew each other because it was a very small community. What you've done in the film was not just try to talk about him, but to talk about the context, the social, the environmental, the political environment. What was going on in New York when he arrived on the scene? You've lived there for a long time in, in the East Village, right? Yeah, well, I, I, was, I was in graduate school at NYU studying film in 78. And the graduate film school was in the middle of the East Village. So you had access, you were going to clubs, you were seeing music, art, and all of us were sort of helping each other with our films and music, and people were in bands who didn't know how to play guitars, but they'd pick up a guitar. And I used the music from Grey, which was Jean-Michel's band in the film, and it makes a beautiful score for the film. You know, he was very multi-talented, and I, I realized that a lot of young people want to know where he came from, which was one of the impetus just for me to make the film. We were all nurtured by the same environment, which was being in a city that nobody wanted to be in because it was bankrupt, living in these burned-out buildings that we had to pay very little rent so we could do art and experiment because we didn't really need... You could work in a Xerox shop and make enough money to make your rent that month and enough to eat pizza every day. And you could do your art and be with your friends and learn from each other. And I think we all germinated each other 
in different ways. And I wanted to show how, I mean, what was interesting to me making the film was that Jean-Michel created his own university in a way of study, of the people that he chose to learn from and to exchange ideas with were pretty exceptional people. I don't have everyone in the film that I would have liked to have had in the film because we weren't that small a group, but I wanted to give a sampling of, of how we fed each other in different ways. Let's talk about who is in the film, who's talking about him, who had these personal experiences with the radiant child that was Jean-Michel Basquiat. Well, my friend Alexis Adler, who instigated the film, actually, she lived with him for about a year, from 79 to 80. And um, Hurricane Sandy hit New York City in 2012. And um, I went over for a cup of tea. It was like late November 2012. And I went over to see her and have a cup of tea in early January 2013. And we all knew she had lived with Sean. She had a mural on her bedroom wall. She has a bathroom door. You know, she's a scientist. She's one of the world's leading embryologists, Alexis. And she was studying at Rockefeller University when Jean was living with her. And he did a lot of drawings on the Rockefeller University stationery and stuff. She's living in the same place she lived in with him with yeah. him, so many years ago. Yeah, they squatted a building together. You used to be able to squat buildings in New York, and then the city of New York, you could buy an apartment for like $200 from the city of New York, which is what Alexis did, and invited Jean to, to live there. And that was, she was the first person to really give him a key to a place. And she really didn't mind that she would wake up every morning and her clothes would be painted, and the floor of the apartment would be painted, and the walls would be painted. I, I told her, I said, it must have been like living with an elf. You know, that you wake up to this every day. And she was very excited by it, whereas other people were like, why are you painting on my walls and my floor? And, you know, she was very accepting, and I think she saw his talent very early on, and she loved him, you know, as a person. She just really valued him. And she brought this materials out, and it was about 60 drawings, writings, a notebook. And then she remembered she had this box of clothes that he had painted and then she had taken about 100 125 150 photographs of him at that age when I saw what she had I thought this is not just a window on to Jean this is an incredible window on him as a young person looking trying to find his way as an artist but this is a window on to that whole little very zeitgeist of a period in New York City which was 78 to 81 and then everything sort of changed after 81. Let's describe what the the environment was like, you were saying squatters, but there were just empty buildings, just blocks and blocks of empty, burned-out buildings. Yeah, because the landlords couldn't make any money because nobody wanted to live in New York, so they just burned the buildings down for insurance money. And then they flooded the Lower East Side with drugs. And there were drugs everywhere. And there were drugs, like Colleen was saying in the film, in the Mud Club, you could get free, dr- free drugs for a while, it was free cocaine, and then after a while it turned into heroin. And, and that's an easy way to kill off people. You know, and after 81, the real estate became more valuable, and, you know, there were a lot of dead bodies along the way. Because it was so dangerous on the street, we had to protect each other and watch each other's backs. So that also helped kind of form our community. When I'd walk to school from Little Italy, because I was living in Little Italy, and to the East Village, I cut my hair about an inch long so that I looked like a boy so that I could go to school at night and edit films and things like that and not be harassed on the street. You know, and I, I also took a kind of very manly stride to protect myself. Wow. That was a time. Yeah. But also a time that a community came together, like you said, to make something beautiful happen. Yeah, and also we were so connected to the street because we had to be for safety issues. 
So you also were observing a lot of things because you had to be very alert. I feel like I was given a gift every day. I would hear something or observe something that was just so human by like homeless people or different people that you would encounter. You'd have these dialogues with people too on the street that doesn't happen today. Well, I sense the poetry and true nostalgia in the piece that I found very beautiful. I want to talk about the title of the film, Boom for Real. Um, Well, that's what Jean would say when he got excited. And he was getting very excited. It was a period where he was full of excitement. There have been other films made about Basquiat. What do you hope to bring to the table as far as the documentation of his life? I made the film to instigate young people today. If you're going to do art, you need community. You need an exchange of ideas. You need to put down your phones and hang out with each other and to bounce ideas off of each other and try things and fail at things. I think there's an enormous pressure on young people today that they're supposed to succeed and not fail. You don't learn if you don't fail. And if you don't try things, you don't get anywhere. Because I think Jean is a great example of someone who is so driven by his need to get his signal out. And I know there are a lot of young people who have the same feeling, and they can do it just like he did. I mean, he was exceptional in many ways, but I think we're all capable of somehow getting our signal out if we have that need. And I think there was also so much interest about him that people don't really know where he came from. And I wanted to show what the environment was that nurtured this great artist that we're looking at now today. And he feels so new and so contemporary, even though he's been dead since 1988. It's phenomenal, and I wanted to also not mythologize him. It is showing the very emergent brilliance of the artist that died too young. It's not a romanticized view of him. It's really a view of him as part of a bigger picture of his time. Good morning. This is Fresh Art International. Today we're sharing conversations we recorded during Miami Art Week 2017. The feature film for Art Basel Miami Beach, Sarah Driver's documentary Boom for Real, is a window onto a moment in the cultural history of New York City that predates the Internet. The story takes us to a time when individuals forged communities in real life. What's important to know about Fresh Art International is that every dialogue we share with you represents a real-life encounter. Our finale for today's program is one of the conversations that we brought to our daily radio show at Untitled Art Fair Miami Beach. Baltimore-based painter Amy Sherald joined me one afternoon to talk about her work. Good afternoon. This is Kathy Bird with Fresh Art International, and I'm coming to you live from the Untitled Art Fair on Miami Beach. And I'm thrilled to have a friend and a superstar artist with me today, Amy Sherald. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Kathy. I was just thinking today about the fact that when we first met, you were waiting for a heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I was out of a job, and we were encouraging each other professionally and personally to get through some hard times. Yeah, definitely. You've grown so much since I've known you, and you've encouraged me all the way along for these six years (laughs) that I've been doing Fresh Art International. Yeah. And I just got a $50,000 grant from the Night Arts Foundation. I know. That's so wonderful. Congratulations. It's just so great. And you're a big, 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 big 
news is that you've been commissioned to paint the portrait of Michelle Obama. Yeah, it's amazing. It's really exciting. And I can't wait till I can actually talk about it because I can't really talk about it right now. <laughs> I know we're going to just talk around it. Yeah. <laughs> well, for those people who would like to know more than they're going to hear from us, there is a podcast episode that I recorded live with Amy last summer at Monique Maloche Gallery in Chicago. And we had such a great conversation. It was at a very fraught moment of racial yeah. tension that was painful. Was painful and still very intense. Yes, yeah. and I remember feeling that your work, even then and still remains, really important work in the way you depict the black figure. Mm -hmm. And let's just say the background a little bit. You grew up in I, Georgia. Yeah, I grew up in Columbus, Georgia daughter of Geraldine and Amos. <laughs> Columbus is a small town. I went to private school, had the same art teacher from kindergarten to 12th grade, and really decided that painting was going to be my thing during my first field trip to the Columbus Museum when I saw a painting that changed my life because it was actually a painting that had a black figure in it. And I had never seen that before because all the exposure that I had gotten was just from looking at encyclopedias, you know, and so I was looking at European paintings and didn't see myself but was looking at them for the different elements of style and things like that, but that was life-changing for me. And you ended up in Baltimore going to school at the Maryland Institute College of Art, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Upon recommendation of a very close friend of mine named Maori Holmes, who's actually the founder of Black Star Film Festival, she suggested Maryland Institute College of Art and Baltimore to me and, and it never even crossed my mind because I had my sights set on New York but it turned out to be one of the best decisions I ever made. I think Baltimore being its special place for you, it, you you're calling it home now. Yeah, I'm definitely attached to the city and its people and have met some wonderful people since I've been there and made some lifelong friends and remain active in the community and I'm ready to take responsibility for it as I grow and have the capacity to do more for the underprivileged. So Baltimore is a social context, political context for your work. Yeah. And yeah. I know your subjects you've drawn from New Orleans and Baltimore and some particularly New yeah. some New York. Let's talk for a minute about the fact that you're not a fast painter. No, I'm you're not. not. You're taking your time with this work. Well, it takes me a while to find my models. That's the first thing. I'm really looking for something very specific when I find my people. And it's something that I haven't really been able to describe. It's the same feeling that you might get when you see someone that you think you know. It's just some kind of recognition. But the best way that I've been able to describe it is that they exist in, like there's, there's something about them that exists in the present, the past, and the future. There's an awkwardness there, there's a sense of, I don't even know, yeah, it's just, it's something, I don't know, I don't, and I don't think everyone else could see it either. You paint these subjects in a color field instead right. of in an environment, and so right. I think that really contributes to the timeless yeah. feeling of the work. That's also important to me too. When I studied with Adnerjom, a painter, a Norwegian painter, he spoke about his ideas of what made a good painting and one of them was that they were heliocentric and that's he kind of stretched the definition of the word but it's basically that they had a sense of timelessness and so that really resonated with me and I, I think that it is the main reason why I don't place the figures 
in an active background where there's context to be able to interpret them by, I think the subversiveness comes in because it's just them and the viewer and they're very present in these portraits. They know that they're being painted and they're connecting with you. And I hang the paintings about seven or eight inches lower than work is normally hung because I want that kind of intimacy between the painting and the, and the viewer, yeah. It's a conversation, the painting itself, because yeah. all of these subjects, these individuals that you're painting are looking straight at us. Right, which has historical significance too. A lot of the imagery that you see of black Americans historically, I mean, we weren't even allowed to make eye contact with white people at, at a certain point, you know? So a lot of that is about a soft confrontation, you know, and I'm not a very confrontational person, so I like to make work that teaches, but also allows the viewer to not feel as if they're being literally taught something in that moment. So, like, they have a chance to create a narrative and to interact with it based off of their life experiences. And your subjects are consistently black people. Yes. Your people. Yes. I've been black for 44 years, so <laughs> I like to paint black people now. Again, like it's a critique on art history, and it's really meaningful for me to put these images out there in the world for people to see and for people to interact with. I think they still have a universal appeal, even though they are people of color. So I get emails all the time from people from all over the world that really relate to the imagery, and that's really special to me. Their humanity is visible. They're just American people doing stuff. And I think that's really important that the imagery of black people or just blackness in general doesn't always have to be charged or be making a statement. It can just be. Well, it is making a statement by just being, right. I think, yeah. actually. It'd be interesting to talk right now about some of the influences on your work in terms of the genres, things that you like to look at. and that continue to inspire you, yeah. your subject matter and, and their poses. Right. I'm really inspired by photography, and I think it's because photography was the first place that, looking at these older daguerreotypes, where I was able to see these positive images of people that look like me from the 1900s. Once the camera was invented, it was the first time that we were able to become authors of our own narrative, which is really important. So. The family photographs and things like Du Bois's exposition in Paris, where he had 367 photographs of black Georgians, you know, this is shortly after the Civil War, just showing them doing things to counter the narrative of the racial propaganda that was also being put out there at the same time. So a lot of photography and a lot of cinematography. Um, a huge fan of Wes Anderson, his palette, the way he directs is really inspirational to me and I'm putting it out there that I want him to make a movie with my figures in there. <laughs> All right, we'll let him know. We'll forward this <laughs> conversation to Wes Anderson because, indeed, you do dress your figures in vivid fashion and they have an amazing style. Each one has such a persona that's very individual, very appealing. Yeah. And you just can't stop, well, I can't stop looking at right. them. Right, I agree. I'm thinking that I see you still render the skin color as a more gray, it's not a particular no. blackness, a darkness to the, the figures. Yeah. Well, in the beginning, this is in hindsight, I realized that the work that I was making 
previously in graduate school was really ambiguous and that was kind of a luxury. And then I became aware of how the narrative of the black body on canvas was gonna be marginalized. And in a way I was trying to avoid that by not painting the skin color. But every decision that I make about my work in the beginning is always aesthetic, you know, so I'm really an emotional and intuitive painter. And then, you know, you sit back and look at what you made and you try to figure out what subconsciously is present within that narrative. We were talking earlier about this fantastic opinion piece that was submitted to the New York Times yeah. by Naima Green, yes. another artist. A photographer, yeah. And I'd love to look at what she said and think about what it means for you. She was talking about her own photography and photographing a woman in a park and how her professors, I believe, or her critics yeah. were saying, that's not real. Yeah, well they said it wasn't charged enough. I think that I felt the same way. I think what's important and what she said in the article was that blackness doesn't always have to be presented in a form of activism or of oppression, that we all have our own individual experiences of blackness and each one of my paintings represent that. And I think that's why we connected. I thought that her commentary on the Michelle Obama portrait was spot on. Well, she was saying that it's an important signal that you were selected. Yeah, and that's why, because I paint everyday people doing everyday things, and everyday people is Michelle Obama, and she became the first lady, and so it slides right into my narrative. And let's talk about Michelle Obama. What do we think of her? I think she's great. I think a lot of us women, all shapes, sizes, and colors, we see our best selves in her, and she is fantastic role model and I think she gives a lot of people hope with her presence and we become more confident just by knowing she's out there. It was just nice to, to know that she's out there in the world. And this rising in this past year, the rising of feminism and yeah. demands for equity and fairness yeah. and pay and treatment and our sexuality, a recognition of who we are. That's all a conversation. I don't think people are having that same conversation around black lives the way they are around white women because I think that white women are allowed to be victims and we still have to convince people that when something happens to us that we didn't deserve it. So I think that there's still two different conversations and they're not being recognized in the same way. Which makes it even more relevant that you continue to paint the black body. Very much. As a figurative painter, I think you've chosen always to paint real people and yeah. maybe we can share a little bit how you find these people. Yeah, just living my life. I go to the grocery store or I'm in the park and I'll meet somebody and then I'll approach them and ask them if I can paint them and I let them know that I'm, I say I'm an artist and I say, I say like I'm a real artist, you know, and I tell them like I have work here and I have work here so I can disarm them and then usually get their information and sometimes I call them immediately and sometimes it might be a year later. It just kind of depends. But I will photograph them and again, sometimes I look at the image after I photograph them and they don't work in the moment, but I'll look at the same image a year later and all of a sudden it's okay for me to use it like something, I don't know what happened in between, but all of a sudden I like it and it becomes a beautiful painting. I'm interested in how you title your works. There seems to be uh, storytelling in the title as well as in the subject. 
The first time I really started thinking about titles was when I was paired with a poet for a publication for the Studio Museum of Harlem. She wrote a poem about my work, and one of the lines in that poem was well-prepared and maladjusted, and I really liked it, so I decided to name, I think it was the fourth painting I did in the series, that, and after that, it was, I had something that I had to try to outdo each one. That was the impetus for that, and then my sister is a writer, and I, a lot of times, if I can't figure out what I want to title it, because I think if it was left up to me, it would take me about six months to name each one. I just need to be able to separate myself from it in order to be able to look at it as an object and not what I just spent a month trying to finish. So she helps out a lot with that and we'll go back and forth and then usually settle on something. They're very poetic. Tell us what work you have here at Monique Meloche. I have three paintings. Um, two of the models I met when I was at the Joan Mitchell Center residency in New Orleans. I spent that four weeks just specifically running around the city looking for models. And I was there in July, I didn't realize that it was going to be so hot and nobody was going to be outside, but luckily I found around six people. And then uh, the other model is from New York, and she's actually somebody that a friend of mine sent to me, and he sent me a Facebook message, and he was like, check this girl out, she looks like she'd be in an Amy Sherrill painting. And so I looked at her and he was right, and so that, that does happen a lot, and I think that once you look at all the figures, you can kind of see and pick up on what it is that I'm looking for because that starts to happen. People send me images and think she belongs in your world. So it makes sense. That's very cool. Well, I think the description of what Naima Green anticipates your yeah. work will look like about Michelle Obama is that it will be a spectacular realization of her spectacularity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of that, that commission has shot you up in the art market. Yeah, I mean, you know. We are in an art fair. They keep calling me obscure, and I, I just don't understand that because, I mean, I had a waiting list before this happened. So, like, I had a career before it happened, and I'm not saying it didn't help, but um, a lot of the articles say that I was plucked out of obscurity, and I just don't understand that. I agree. That was a bit harsh. <laughs> because you've had a waiting list for your paintings for at least three years since, now. Yeah, since 2015. So I think it just makes for a good story. So, you know, we'll let them have it, I guess. Yeah, but let's say that that's helping. That's good. Yeah, it's good. We're it's not good. Gonna I'm, I'm definitely experiencing the Michelle Obama effect. <laughs> I have lots of fans. Yeah, I and bet I, I'm going to try not to disappoint the people. I think I'm going to make them proud. I think you are too. Yeah. I'm sure your family, your mother in particular, is super excited about this next chapter for you. She is. I'm happy that she's here and alive to witness it because she's 83. You know, in her lifetime, this is something that's truly special because she was born in 1935 and the world has changed several times over in her lifetime. So, And I think that your own family history is charging your work. That too, yeah. I mean, you know, I didn't grow up with a grandmother because she was from Alabama and died because of racism. That history is part of my history. And those things are things that you think about in your everyday life. Even if they're not surfacing all the time, they're in your subconscious, so. Tell me what you've seen in this art fair, other artists, figurative painters, out in the fairs that you've been visiting while you've been here, our collections that have impressed you? I don't even know whether I know their names, but I did see some great work. I would shout out Deborah Roberts. She's also 
been having a good year and her work is really amazing. Jordan Castile was at the main fair. Really love her work as well. I saw a beautiful photography project by Carrie Mae Weems. Yeah, that was great. There's a gallery from Amsterdam that has a photographer in their booth that I really like. It's like about people in boats in the ocean. I mean, that's a minimal description of it. It's a lot, it's a lot more intense than that. I was really moved by those, enough that I kind of want to buy one. I love it. You get a chance to start collecting art <laughs> once you start making it. <laughs> I can't wait, actually. I love that. Well, thank you for spending time with me today. Thank you for it's having me. It's been tremendous. Yes. And I know that vision and grace will continue to prevail in your work. I just see it coming. Thank you. I want to let everyone know that I've been in conversation here today with Amy Sherald, based in Baltimore, an American figurative painter who is a rising star and yeah. has been for years. <laughs> Good morning. You've been listening to my live streaming radio conversation with Baltimore-based artist Amy Sherald. What a wonderful life. Last week, I was hosting a show inside an art fair tent on Miami Beach. Today, we're live streaming from the studio at Jolt Radio in Miami. On this program, Tanya Hollander, Nancy Davidson, Tanya Elkuri, Sarah Driver, and Amy Sherald talked about the roles that social media art, inflatable sculpture, interactive performance, documentary film, and figurative painting played in Miami Art Week and Art Basel Miami Beach 2017. If you like what you're hearing, please follow us at FreshArtINTL. To learn more about Fresh Art International, visit our website. While you're there, please click on the support button to help us match our Night Arts Challenge grant. Your cash donation or monthly contribution in any amount will make a difference. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk. <music>